If you would, please follow with me the reading of the Word of God, chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you of the grace of God, which was been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction... Their abundance of joy, their deep poverty overflowed, and the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability, and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation and the support of the saints. And this not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance, knowledge and all earnestness and in love, we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others, the sincerity of your love also. Father, give us ears to hear. May your word go forward in power of your spirit to each precious soul this day. And all that would hear this, Lord, their devotion to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords would overwhelm them and they would no longer hide but would stand in confidence and boldness in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Father, may our love for you be seen. Father, may we treat our finances with that same devotion, that same love unto you in Christ and Christ alone. Over the last few weeks, I've looked at the Old Testament and Abraham and how giving the tithe was given. And I shared with you during that process that there are basically two standards in Scripture for giving. One is the required giving, and one is voluntary giving. We have been looking at the Macedonians and understanding why Paul is using them as an illustration. Over the last few weeks, we have looked at they gave because it was by the grace of God. They could look at what God had done and that overwhelmed them in their giving. We also looked that it was, had nothing to do with the circumstances. They were a persecuted church. They were a poor church. And yet they gave sacrificially. In doing so, because of their devotion to Christ, it was a joyous endeavor for them. It was the thing they looked forward to. Not only was it so joyous, even their deep poverty couldn't stop it. In that, they were extraordinarily generous based on the proportion that they had. Too many in the church today believe that giving is based on an amount. If our church gives millions, then we are truly good. It's not true. The widow gave what? Two half cents. And he says she gave more than all the rest. So it's always going to be proportionate. But it is generous. It is sacrificial. 
and it is purely voluntary. Okay, so we've been looking at it. We we, we took two weeks. I went before Moses and showed you that it voluntary and what was required. I looked at after Moses and the Mosaic law, and I showed you that it was voluntary and required. How are we as Christians in the new covenant to get <laughs> voluntary and required? All right. And I, and I think now I'm moving into verses four through eight. You know, the first one I'm looking at is that giving is a privilege. It's privilege. And I bet you, you'd be hard-pressed to find an American Christian who would ever think that. That is a motive that is born out of love. The love of God has been poured into our heart. And you know what? Many do it because they believe it's an obligation. Um, You look at the body of Christ right now. You can look at it locally here in Castle Rock. You can look at it on a state picture or look at it on a national picture. Giving is at best an obligation. Some believe it doing for reciprocation. I will give because I will receive. And you know, we bless our hearts. We try our best. You think I'm kidding? What's Christmas? I'll ask you a simple question. Whose birthday is it? How much do we give him for his birthday? You know, and I've heard all the excuses. Our whole economy is, what will Christmas be like? I don't think Jesus cares. his birthday and I am very concerned on what it is we believe we're going to give him the biblical view of giving here is illustrated by the Macedonians Um, and and I'll I'll be honest with you in in my years as a Christian and as my years in church leadership giving is done by devoted Christians it always has been. I've seen all the surveys. I've heard all the polls. I've done all the research that's on it. 20% take care of the 80. That number ain't changed. Why? Because you can look at the average congregation right now, and you're probably going to find about 20% are devoted to Christ. Okay? And you know what? I can, we could get a big projector and a screen and I could put up some big moving passionate pictures and the orphans and the whatever. Give more. Okay? And, you know, probably could stir somebody to give a little more out of their comfort zone. But those who are devoted to Christ are the givers. And one of the things that I've noticed about those who are devoted to Christ, the only thing they need is an opportunity to respond. They were given in the Corinthian church and in the Macedonian churches for a year. I would lay it on your heart right now. Next year, we will be needing about $13,000 for the summer camps in Orel. Why would we not start giving now? 
We are going to get 100 stars, $25 a piece for Christmas. It's the biggest outreach in the churches in Orel. Why would we not start giving now? Because it will be based on your devotion to Christ. I read you letters of what's going on over there with the summer camps. I haven't even gotten the information from Orel. I know what happens with the stars. I was there about a month after Christmas and these kids are walking around with these stars pinned on their shirts. They think that's the greatest thing. There's an American out there who wants me to know Jesus. I can't believe it. They sent me a Bible. They sent me food. They sent me toys. I didn't even get that from my parents. And they're all tied up in Sunday schools now. Happy as can be. Some of the few Russians who smile. Telling their mom and dad about the wonderful things of Jesus Christ and the people of Christ. Same thing the Macedonians. They were given to the Jews in Jerusalem whom they had never met. Whom they had never met. A, a Christian who is committed results in their giving and it will be generous. They just look at it. And, all, and a committed Christian, all they want is to respond to an opportunity that has presented itself. Remember our context. Paul has just restored the relationship with the Corinthians. That was a mess. And chapter 7 says the restoration has taken place. Now he's calling the Corinthians to step up and to give. And again, it's specific to the saints in Jerusalem. Extremely poor. The first mega church was dirt poor. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2 says, You are taking up a weekly offering. Everyone is to give weekly. Everyone should be giving weekly because we're going to do Emmanuel's child stars. I don't even have stars yet. But just figure out how many times you give $25 and I'll make sure you get a star. We should be right now putting away money for the summer camps. I believe that this congregation, as small as we are, would be no problem whatsoever to put $13,000 together for, to pay for every student who goes to summer camp next year. And it starts in July and goes all the way through August. And you have to meet all these strangers in heaven saying, it was because of your giving in America that I'm in heaven now because I went to the summer camps. I mean, most of us, think about it. We're fruit of who? Paul. I ain't never met Paul. But I'm going to walk up to him and say, thanks, man. <laughs> Dude, there's a bunch of that in there hurt my feelings, but I made it. <laughs> the Corinthians had known for at least a year, and they were wanting, Paul was wanting an accumulation of all of the money so he could take one large sum. So it was in regard to their weekly giving. Paul gives the principle in the first eight verses of chapter 8 um, that giving is the behavior of a devoted Christian. And he uses the example of the Macedonians, basically three churches, the Church of Philippi, Church of Thessalonica, and the Bereans. And he uses them because they were givers. Why? They had given themselves first to the Lord. 
Their devotion was to Christ. And it was seen because of their generous giving. And they were an example. Paul is instructing the Corinthians and he's instructing all Christians through all time to give and follow the pattern of the Macedonians. We look at their giving in these first eight verses and I still stand in awe of the terminology that the Apostle Paul uses. Um, and and you, you have to stand back. You know, I, I look at the letter to the Thessalonians and one of my favorite letters of all of Scripture and it said that what God, they had turned from idols to the true living God. And it had had such an impact that the whole Greek peninsula had known about it and was hearing about it. And all of Christendom was hearing of this massive invasion of God into Thessalonica. With that, then what would their giving be? What made their giving so outstanding? How, how's come their attitude? See, today, most of us look at giving based on the amount. When the truth of the matter is, it isn't the amount. It is Voluntary, sacrificial, and generous. Those last three that we looked at in the first three verses. The grace was there in verse 1. Because of the grace that they had received, they were overwhelmed by God. Sure, we'll give. We want to see more. Verse 2 says, the circumstances were irrelevant. They were dirt poor. Dirt poor. They did it with joy in verse 2. This was something they looked forward to. How many people go to church on Sunday morning saying, Gosh, I can't wait to give. How many? But the Thessalonians and the Philippians and the Bereans, that's what they were doing. It's the first day of the week. Yes! I've been saving all week. Their poverty didn't slow it down because of their hearts were generous, their hearts were sacrificial, and their hearts were voluntarily wanting to invest in eternal things. God had transformed their lives and it turned them into these awesome, massive givers. And listen, this is way beyond just human giving. It was a level of sacrifice of those transformed by God's grace. That they give beyond. That it would literally have an effect on their life. Most people give today. I will give as long as it doesn't have an effect on my life. That's what I mean about money. Grace, circumstances, joy, poverty, generousness, sacrificial, voluntary. Even though they were persecuted by the religious fools of the day even though they were under harsh taxism, even though they lived in an economic structure that gave no venue. Those last three that I gave you were they were willingly sacrificial and it was generous based proportionately. These were important. You know why they're important? 
That is the heart attitude. The heart attitude. You know what is amazing? When you give from the heart, there is no amount. When you give from the heart, there is no percentage. You see a need and you sacrifice to meet that need. Voluntarily from the heart, sacrificially from the heart. And when you want generosity that is motivated by a thankfulness because of my love to the Lord. It isn't that complicated. How you handle money is directly proportionate to your devotion to Jesus Christ. I've already showed you. He will supply all your needs. And we say, but that ain't what the text says. They gave their best. They gave their first fruit. Why? They gave with their heart. Whether it was in the Old Testament, whether it's in the New Testament, it's the same. The Bible is clear about this. It, you know what? The Bible does not teach that the Jews gave 10%. I showed you that. They didn't. They gave 25%. They gave to a theocracy. They gave to the government. They gave to a temple treasury. And when they didn't give to the temple treasury, Malachi 3.8 says, Do you rob God? And he said, Because of the way you're handling your money, 400 years, you will not hear from me. And then when you do hear from me, it will be one crying in the wilderness. Same pattern in the New Testament. At the time of Christ, the Jews were what? A theocracy. A theocracy. They had the temple. It was run by the Levites. The political power in Jerusalem were the religious leaders that you and I know as the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Levites. They led the country and they were funded through taxation and it was paid for the running of the nation. And everybody says, well, they were a bunch of crooks. Well, duh, they robbed God in Malachi. Really? Surprise? What did you think they would be in 400 years? In the courtyards, the outer courtyards of the temple were 13 trumpet-shaped containers. And you had to drop your taxes in every time you went there. And you'd drop it in one of the trumpet-shaped containers. And you know what is amazing about it? It's exactly what Moses said to do. But they had a lot of fun going on in Israel because they were under Roman occupation. And so basically you got a group of people who are funding two governments. Sign me up for that one. That's why you had the zealots. 
they wouldn't go around with little knives about that long and stick them in Romans at random intervals because they didn't want to pay the second tax. They didn't mind giving their money to God. But why would I want to give it to Rome? They hated the Roman tax. That's one of the amazing things. If you read the Gospel of Matthew, it's one of the most fascinating things I ever... He would have been one of the most hated people in Israel. He was a Roman tax collector. That's what he did for a living. That's sort of like hanging out with an IRS agent. This is my best friend. He works for the IRS. Well, one of you is nuts. The Jews were supporting two governments. And some thought, in the beginning, that Jesus was there to start a tax revolt. That's what they thought it was coming. Can I be with you in your kingdom? At the right hand or the left hand? Why? Because when we run these bums out of here, I want some of the action. You know what? He never did. He never even commented on the Roman taxes. He never said that, well, you know, we're supposed to give like Moses says to the temple, but I'm not sure about this thing giving it to the Romans. He never said anything like that. He said what? Pay your taxes. I want to give you some pictures through the gospel. Because you'll see why. You shall see why. All right. Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 17, beginning at verse 24. Came into Capernaum. Those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? Okay, it's equal to two denarii. Um, basically two days wages. All right. Does your teacher do not pay this tax? And he said, yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? So this is what we look around and say, a teachable moment. Jesus knows what's going on. He says, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? Whenever Peter is acting worldly, he always calls him Simon. When he steps into the right place, he calls him Peter. So he says, Simon, what do you think? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or the poll tax? Poll tax is a head tax. You're here, you exist, you owe me money. From their sons or from strangers? Okay, the kings of the earth, do they tax their relatives or do they tax strangers? When Peter said, from strangers, Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt? However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea, throw in a hook, take the first fish that comes up. When you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that 
and give it to them for you and me. See what he just said? My father owns it all. Why would he tax me? Why would I give to the temple tax when the temple tax is for who? My father. That's what his argument is. He says, but we will not offend. Now, he does have a clever way of getting his tax money. Okay, I can be honest with you. I've never been able to pay my taxes that way. Okay, which means that my father in heaven says, pay your taxes. Who do the kings collect their taxes from? Their own relatives, their own sons, or from strangers? Strangers, everybody knows that. Jesus is the son who ordained all governments by the human standards. And he says, but lest we give offense, we must what? Pay our taxes. Go fishing and get our money, Peter. Okay? Pay your taxes. I wish I could do it the way Peter did it, but not at this time. Let me show you another one. Matthew's Gospel 22, beginning of verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. (laughs) Yeah, I love these guys. (laughs) Let's trap Jesus. You know, make him say something that would get him in trouble. All right. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. We got them all now. Teacher, we know that you are truthful. Oh, here we go. And you teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. (laughs) Well, there's some oozing something going on there, huh? Tell us. What do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Okay, that's a head tax. You exist, you pay a tax. Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness? An inscription is this. And they said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Hearing this, they were amazed. Not real bright either, but they were amazed. See what I mean? They marveled, they were amazed. Why? Give it to Caesar. Let me give you another one. Chapter 23. Same text. This is kind of an amazing text for me. Verse 23 of the text. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Uh, This would be the fifth time he calls them hypocrites. Uh, And woe, the word woe there is not woe, slow down. It is cursed, are you? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you tithe the mint, the dill, and the cumin. 
All right. You know what he's basically saying there? You're doing what you're supposed to. What did Moses say? You tithe your seed to the temple. Can you imagine? Sit around counting seeds? And you thought your tax return was tough. You do that. I mean, it's almost... If he hadn't cursed them in the first part, he's commending them. You are doing as Moses said. You are giving a tenth. Here's your problem. You neglect the weightier provisions of the law. See, the law he's saying is right. You give your tenth, your first of everything. Yes, that's right, that's right, that's right, that's right. But the law of Moses also teaches on justice. It teaches on mercy. It teaches on faithfulness. But these things you should have done without neglecting the tithing of your seeds. It is right to pay the tenth. It is wrong to ignore what really matters. Pretty cool, huh? The last time that Jesus speaks on the tithe in the gospel record is out of Luke's gospel, chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. He told this parable to some of the trusted in themselves and there were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men came up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be Exalted. You know what is amazing about that text? He did not say that t- fasting was wrong. He did not say tithing was wrong. Okay? He was exalting in himself. See, the problem with the text is that people believe that I give my tenth of everything and I fast twice a week, then I must be saved. It's not wrong to pay taxes. It's not wrong to fast. It's not wrong to pray. What was wrong is he assumed by doing these things, he gained his salvation. Okay? After the gospel that refers to the taxation that existed in Israel and in Rome. Did you see that? He says, pay your taxes to the theocracy. Pay your taxes to the occupiers. The Jews were paying taxes for two governments. But after the gospel record, after the text there in Luke... There's no mention of tithing except for Hebrews 7. 
At Hebrews 7, I've already shared with you that Abram tied the top of the pile to Melchizedek. But if you go into the context of Hebrew, it's speaking of the priesthood of Christ. He doesn't say, as Abram tithed to Melchizedek, you should tie to the high priest of Jesus Christ. doesn't say that. He just said that it did. There's no other instruction in the New Testament about tithing. The church is never told to tithe. The Christians are never told to tithe. Tithing has never been giving to God ever in all of Holy Writ. It's always a taxation. It is always giving to the government. Fascinating. Paul writing to the church in Rome. Romans 13, 1 through 7 is a fascinating text. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Did you hear what he just said? For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have fear of authority? Do what is good. And you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. Do you know who he said just called a minister there? Read the context. He just called the government what? Ministers. Well, that's a real old book. That was written a long time ago. Dude, that was written when they were taking Christians into the arenas and feeding them to lions. And Paul says, submit to them. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of the wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Gosh, poo, it says pay my taxes. Peter makes the same statement in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, and he says it's required. And if you read that, that's the oppression of the Jews going down. They ain't having any fun. They're going to prison. It is voluntary. Go back to your text in 2 Corinthians. It's voluntary. How am I to give? It's voluntary. I've had people tell me, you cannot teach that. You have to teach the minimum is a tithe. And then they'll give on top of it. If not, the giving of the church is out the window. Chapter 9, verse 6 says, I say this, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Okay, now I've heard a bunch of people tell me, that's why you go hand out tracts. Because if you sow a bunch of tracts, you'll harvest a bunch of souls and you just looking good. Well, what? 
I read chapter and eight and nine of Corinthians throughout the context of the Corinthian letters, and that ain't got nothing to do spiritually. That text right there has to do with one thing and one thing only. Whatever penny you put in the plate, make sure you'll know that you'll get a penny back. If I sow sparingly, I will reap sparingly. In this context, there's nothing else you can do with that. It's money. Well, but I think it's given of your son. No, it's money. Read it. What you sow, you will harvest. And it will be given back to you. Chapter 8, verse 9, 2 Corinthians. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty might become rich. Okay, so it's a real simple premise. I kind of like it myself. The amount is up to us. The amount is up to us. Paul makes the statement there in verse 10. Uh, verse 7, I mean, of chapter 9. Each one of us must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. It's in our heart. Your giving is directly related to your heart relationship with the Lord. Which brings me back to verse 4, which is the giving is a privilege. Begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Okay, do you understand what he just said there? They were wanting the favor. They didn't want an obligation. Paul didn't say, he's going to send you to hell if you don't help the saints in Jerusalem. They wanted to be involved and they wanted to be known for a group of people who did not sow sparingly and had a massive harvest. They were begging. They were pleading. That's what the word begging us with much urging. They were pleading, the Macedonians. And the word literally means next. With begging us with much urging. It has to do with much exhortation. They had much desire. They had much passion. They had a much coming along with earnestness. They were begging for an opportunity. It says, for the favor. The word favor there is awesome. It's charis. It's the word you hear, charismatic. You know what it means? Grace. Grace. They wanted grace. The grace that God had poured upon them, they wanted to pour out. And they were begging for an opportunity to do it. The grace, and then the next word is participation. You know what participation is? You guys know these words. Koinonia. We want the grace of fellowship, of participation. I'm begging you, 
Let us have the grace of participation. These people were pleading with much exhortation to the Apostle Paul for the special grace of being able to have fellowship with the supporting of the poor saints in Jerusalem. Whom they had never met. My goal over the next 12 years, that's what it's going to take me to get through 8 and 9. is <laughs> to make every one of you beg for the privilege of giving. And it'll probably take me 12 years to get there. Karis, the blessing of grace, of being a partner and sharing in the support of the saints. How many of us have ever looked at it from that perspective? Support of the saints. The word support there is diakonos. That's the word we get servant from. We get deacon from. It means ministers. Ministry of the saints. View of giving was a privilege. It was not an obligation. It was a way to express their generosity and their love of the brothers whom they had never met. A view of shared lives. Is what they were looking at. One of the things that stirs me when I deal with Pastor Paul or Pastor Philip or with uh, the, the brothers that we support in Russia all the time is that we are having an eternal effect with people that some of you will never meet. I'll, I'm never going to meet a bunch of these. But yet we have been blessed. Pastor Philip came here. We have been blessed. We spent time with Loon and Pastor Paul. We have been blessed. Okay. One time Valeri was here. Okay, that blessing has been there. We have seen the harvest, people. And yet I want to excel more. Like Paul told the Thessalonica, the church in Thessalonica. Let's do more. Why? You ain't taking it with you. Let's do more. Let's get out there and beg for the privilege. Let's do more. I just received a letter from a dear brother that I had worked with, with Olford Ministries. He is doing orphanages in Ho Chi Minh City and Hanoi. Think about that. And they've asked him to come in. They don't want Muslims. We want Christians. Why? But we want Christians. Because communism believes in morality. And they know that Christians will teach and walk morally. You just shake your head and go, yeah, all right. <laughs> Let's go to Vietnam. Wait, we were there once, weren't we? That worked out well. A way to express their generosity for the love of the brethren and those who will be added to the body. Can we do that? Can we do that? Can I look in a mirror? Can you look in a mirror and say, I beg for the privilege of helping the saints that are in the church now who are reaching to gather more saints in the church now. Can I do that? Giving is a way of support for the work of ministry, for the serving of the saints. Begging for the personal blessings of sharing in the needs of the saints. And some of them you'll never meet. And you know what? The only reason 
is his generous heart. I look at the amazement of my salvation and it makes my heart generous. How could I not want others to be a part of it? And even some that I'll never meet. I want to see some more Taliban get saved. Oh, that'll be a blast. That's how you defeat this. And I, and I don't understand it sometimes. You know what? I have been in this church for a long time. I, you guys all know that. Some of you know that longer than others. This is an amazing church. Okay? I'll never take a nickel from it. Uh, I have been around people who have seen what we've done, that we've been involved with directly, and they stand in awe of it. Okay? Go look at those pictures when Stephanie puts it up. Go look at the number of people that's in Pastor Paul's church. It's packed. It's packed. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. And yet they are so dirt poor that it takes us to help them keep it going. And their schools and things like that. I think we can do more. Call me crazy. But I don't see any reason whatsoever to sell a hundred Emmanuel Child Star in a week. And I don't see any problem with us start stockpiling money right now, a year in advance, to take care of the summer camps in Russia for the whole summer. Well, that's like 13000 That's like $15,000 you're talking about. And? Really? Have you looked around lately? Verse 5 here says, But they first gave themselves to the Lord. The thing that keeps you reserved in your giving is that statement. Okay, this is not a salvation text. It is a devotion text. What is important to me? What is important to me? That's how we give. What you give is what is important to you. Okay. Giving was simple for the Macedonians. Why? There's no reluctance. There was no resistance. Well, yeah, we're, yeah, I'm going to do this. They were overwhelmed with joy just to do it. They were eager to do it. You know, a verse that is really, it's quoted often, but very few people actually take the word apart and see what it means. And it's, I, I giggle anytime I hear people quote it because I hear people quote it often. Chapter 9, verse 7. Each one must do what he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. Have you ever looked at the Greek word for cheerful? You know how you can translate it? Hilarious. That's a hilarious giver. (laughs) I think that's cool. (laughs) But when I hear people tell me, you know, but God wants a cheerful giver. I always think he wants a hilarious giver. (laughs) Line them up. Listen, I'm going to close now. You know, your heart is right. Okay, you ready? 
when you're looking for places to give. Okay? When you are eager seeing it as a privilege. When you are begging, when you are pleading for an opportunity to give, then you can know emphatically that your heart's right. That your heart's right. Okay? Next week we'll look and see that giving is worship. Wonderful, huh? Let's pray. Father, thank you. May our hearts be right. May our hearts be right. May we look for places to give. May we plead for the opportunity. Father, may we sense the amazing things that you're doing. And Father, may we who are sowing sparingly begin now bountifully and watch you do exceedingly abundantly beyond anything we could ever think or imagine. Father, I thank you for this blessed group. What an awesome bunch of people. And yet, Father, I pray that their devotion would grow exponentially. They would be overwhelmed by your presence and the privilege of being children of the Most High God. And it would be seen in our weekly giving to you, Lord, and you alone. In Christ's name, amen.